Let's pray. Oh, God, ours, the cross, the grave, the skies, it's that hope that we cling to. The few moments left in your word, speak to us, please. Don't let us leave the same way we came. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to try to imagine for a moment. This will be hard to do, but try to imagine for a moment what that moment was actually like. Okay? So we're talking, we're talking about pitch black darkness. All right? I'm already in trouble. And then we're talking about no circulating air. Bigger trouble. In fact, if you raised right now your hand in front of your face, you could not see it. There's not a shred of light in the space. And it is as silent as a grave. You're alone. You're the only living being in that space, but there is a body somewhere in the dark in front of you, maybe three or four feet away. It's not your own body. You're not in a casket. Your arms aren't just pinned to your side. You know that. You can move your arms, and when you try to raise them over your head, about up this high, you hit something, and you feel it. It's it's cold, it's, 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 it's damp, it's the rock ceiling of a sepulcher. And you're sealed in it when suddenly your heart stops because you've been absolutely careful not to breathe a sound, but now you hear a sound, something in the dark rustles. And you know that a body in the dark, and if you're in that same space, you can actually hear a body if it moves. It it rustles. You can hear legs just drop off a stone ledge where they've been lying reposed since late Friday. Was that an intake? Or was that a quiet exhale? Maybe you heard them both. To try to imagine that moment is just beyond me. It could have been another way. It could have been in that suffocating darkness, there you are, when in a nanosecond of a nanosecond, there is a flicker of atomic light that fissures into a nuclear sunrise that evaporates the darkness into dust that collapses on the floor. And there he is. Hey, look, I got to admit, it almost seems sacrilegious to, to try to imagine, to try to eyewitness this single most important event chronicled in the histories of the universe, the resurrection of Christ. Let's go to an eyewitness account, except we can't. There were no eyewitnesses. Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew. Grab your Bible. Let's just at least read a description of the moment as preserved these 2,000 years. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. You have your device, pull your device out. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. And after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, oh, we know her, and the other Mary, we don't know her, went to look at the tomb. 
Verse 2, there was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love that. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now, what feels like an eyewitness account, I want to read this with you. We'll read it together. Put it on the screen from the classic on the life of Jesus, Desire of Ages. The face the guards look upon. So this being that, shoom, that has come down. The face the guards look upon is not the face of a mortal warrior. It is the face of the mightiest of the Lord's host. This messenger is he who fills the position from which Satan fell. That would have to be Gabriel, wouldn't it? It's got to be Gabriel. It is he who on the hills of Bethlehem proclaimed Christ's birth. The earth trembles at his approach. The hosts host of darkness flee. And as he rolls away the stone, heaven seems to come down to the earth. The soldiers see him removing the stone, stone as he would a pebble. And they hear him cry, Son of God, come forth. Thy father calls thee. And he who had vanquished death and the grave came forth from the tomb with a tread of a conqueror amid the reeling of the earth, the flashing of lightning, and the roaring of thunder. I tell you what, if you wanted an eight-story IMAX screen surround sound moment, you just got it. When he, the maker of all things who loves and wants me when he comes forth, the Lord Jesus. Wow. So here's the question. Who raised Jesus from the dead? There seems to be some conflicting testimony. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Oh, we have this line. I'll share it with you. This is Peter thundering away on Pentecost morning. And in the middle of that uh, homily, Peter cries out, but God raised him, speaking of Jesus, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I want an amen to that. Isn't that a great line? It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Well, clearly, the Father raised Jesus from the dead. But then you come across this text. A little bit, uh, oh, now what are we going to do with this? This is Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul writing, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Well, it's obviously the Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. This is confusing. And then it really becomes complicated when we have the words of our Lord himself here in John 10, verse 17. Jesus said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, uh-uh, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. So who raised Jesus from the dead? Hmm? It's got to be the entire three-member divine trinity, right? I mean, should we be surprised? All three of them collaborated in the creation of earth from scratch. Should we be surprised? All three of them collaborated in the salvation of the human race from scratch. And now all three of them collaborate in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead from scratch. 
Wow! We're talking about power here. And that's the point. What's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. The resurrection of Christ Jesus, our Lord, required the unleashing of divine omnipotence equally shared among the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the unleashing of divine omnipotence that is available for you and me right now. Do you believe that? You're not sure, are you? Available for you and me right now. I love the way Paul describes this, this, this incredible unleashing. And I just uh, put a line of his on the screen here. This is Ephesians chapter 1. 19 and 20, when Paul describes that power this way, the incomparably great power that raised Christ from the dead. Huh? Do you know what that word, come on, come on, come on. Do you know what this word right here means? What does incomparably mean? Incomparably means that you cannot compare it with any other power. Any other power you come up with and we throw it up to put it beside it won't do. The incomparably great power that raised Christ from the dead. I don't know if you were following this story. I was with a bit of bemusement. I'm talking about that massive, that massive freight liner, 200,000 tons weighing, ever given is its name. Did you follow the news on this thing over the last few days? Huh? 1,342 feet long. That is, that is one quarter of a mile. It is carrying 20,000 containers, and they are filled with $9 billion of merchandise to be sold somewhere on this earth. And that, that freight liner is trying to negotiate a 225-foot canal called the Suez Canal. And because of, because of high winds and low visibility, that one-quarter mile long uh, freight liner twisted in the narrow channel, and you got it, right. It, it got winched. It was stuck. And the whole world watched for six days and night. Listen to this. They tried, they tried everything. Every tugboat they could think of, every winch, every bulldozer trying to free this stuck vessel. Well, guess who ended up doing it? God did. God freed the vessel. They tried everything. And then it happened to be a full moon, and God made sure that those tidal forces got underneath that ship and pulled it with the strength of the omnipotent and pulled it right off that sandbar and freed it up. What man cannot do, God can do. That's the deal about this incomparably great power when it belongs to God. It's the divine power that raised up a dead body. You were standing, you were sitting, squatting by that body just a few moments ago, and boom, something happened. And when that body took that... And that tomb, is ro- the, the door is rolled back by Gabriel himself. What does Jesus declare? I am the resurrection and the life. She who believes in me. He who believes in me. Though they may die. Come on, read that last line out loud with me. Yet shall they. What's that word? They shall live. 
incomparably great power. That's what we're here to celebrate today. (laughs) What man cannot do, God can do. Your life right now, by the way, your life right now is jammed like that freight liner. You are stuck and you know it. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you are stuck right now. You can't go forward. You can't go backwards. You're dead in the water. There's some of you right now, your academics seem pinned down and unable to get forward traction. It looks like you're going to have to give up your dream of that major that you have worked so hard so far, but you can't. Some of you, your finances are intractable, running out by the hour, and there is not a single dollar bill in sight, and you know what I'm talking about. That's what has you trapped today. Some of you are struggling with deteriorating health and everything they throw at it does not seem to reverse it. Some of you are half of a marriage on the rocks. And it looks like this marriage is not salvageable. That's what we're talking about. And then along comes this incomparably great power of the resurrected Christ. I, I, I love what this same Gabriel, the one that was at the tomb, this same Gabriel who really is a, it, well, he was Jesus' guardian angel, if you, if you wish to know. This same Gabriel shows up to the teenage virgin named Mary, and he speaks these words, and I don't want you to ever forget him. Here is Gabriel speaking, no word from God will ever fail. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Jot that down. Luke 1, 37. Isn't that amazing? Mary must have, you know, I loved Katie's children's story a moment ago about, you know, parents keep telling the story. Mary must have told her little boy Jesus the story about the angel who showed up and said this because Jesus, when he grew up, quotes his mother, who's quoting Gabriel, on that day when that uh, rich young ruler crestfallen, Convinced it's impossible to follow this Christ. Jesus said, hey, guys, see that? With man, well, come on, let's put Jesus on the screen. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I need you to get this. I need you to just lock this in your soul of souls. What man cannot do, God can do. Hmm? A marriage can look lost on every front except the divine front. And it's incomparably great power. Now, one of the joys of living in this little community, in this parish, is that we live pretty close to each other in the dorms, even in the community. And that can be good. But sometimes that can be not so good. It's hard for a marriage to struggle in this community. I'll just be honest with you. Why? Because everybody knows. And people who don't deserve to know try to find out. It's not good. There are some downsides to living in an Adventist ghetto, as we do 
But one of the great upsides, come on, one of the great upsides is how people come to the side of those who are suffering and they, they, they journey alongside them. They don't take sides. You never take sides. You can't. You'll destroy any hope of a marriage being restored. You can't take sides. You just be at the side of the ones who suffer. Now, this isn't rocket science. Everybody here knows this. Marriage is facing some immense challenges the world over. So I'm listening to a podcast the other day because uh, Albert Moeller, who... uh, is just just a bright mind. He is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological uh, Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and he ha- he has a, a podcast called Thinking in Public. He has a couple of them. I love listening to him because he's got a bright mind. And I say, you go, Albert. I'd love to meet him someday. But anyway, this particular day, he's interviewing Mark Regnerus. Okay, and who is Mark Regnerus? He is a tenured sociologist, all right, a professor of sociology at the University of Texas, Austin, and he's the author of a brand new book called The Future of Christian Marriage, and it's published by Oxford University Press. And I want to tell you something. If you ever get a book published by Oxford University Press, we will all rise up and call you blessed because they are very particular about what they put their imprimatur to. So we're not talking about some kind of Walmart book on marriage. This is a bright man. And I'm listening to them go back and forth. And I'm so impressed that I immediately go down to my little laptop and I order the book and I just finished reading it. Turns out marriage is in an unusual sort of trouble these days on this planet. I hadn't heard about this. Mark Regnerus, who, by the way, is a practicing Christian, a Presbyterian, I believe, and he's very upfront about it. He is not set out to, 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 to provide a biblical defense of Christian marriage. That's not his point at all. He's not set out to, to, to show how you can be happy in your marriage. He's a sociologist. He's studying seven regions of the world, the United States being one of them, and he's trying to understand what is happening to marriage today. And you know what's happening in marriage today? Fewer and fewer people are getting married because they're waiting longer and longer and longer and longer, and marriage as an institution is facing what it's never faced before. Oh, and we'll deal with that next week and beyond, this little short one-month series. Now, this, I'm, not, I'm not telling you anything, but we live in a culture right now, you know this, where there, there, there is a swath of people, academics and seculars alike, who believe marriage is an outdated institution that needs to be replaced by a more, more egalitarian, user-friendly for this age kind of relationship, and we'll talk about that as well. But I need, to, I need to have you hear from an ethicist from the University of Chicago. He's the late Don Browning. He was very much a believer in marriage. Now, now Mark Regnerus quotes Don Browning, so I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Okay? Marriage is not... So this is, Brown, this is Browning now talking, the great ethicist, all right? Marriage is not a popular topic. Boy, you got that right. It is often referred to as the M word. Hmm. Almost in the same category as other dirty words. Of course, it is not a dirty word, still quoting Browning, but it is a word that makes people uncomfortable as a topic of serious conversation. People start squirming when you say, let's talk about marriage. Why? Because we don't know what to do with it. We survive ourselves, but we're not sure. And yeah. Now, Regnerus goes on. 
add Christianity to marriage as a topic of conversation, and you get the holy grail of unfashionable pairings in the scholarly world. Don't you bring that up at all. Oh, my. Has the M word of marriage lost its benefits for this society? Question. Answer. Are you kidding? Let me run this by you. We'll just read. Regnerus, I went ahead and put some numbers in. So you're gonna, we're going to count how many benefits could we just count on our pinkies right now if we were trying to guess them together. Here we go. The data on marriage remains solid, even if few want to go on the record admitting it. Well, it's not really that great. Come on. Notice this. Marriage is by far, I put the number in, one, the optimal context for child rearing. Oh, I get that. Two, married men and women accumulate more education and wealth and are more likely to own a home than our unmarried adults, even similarly situated cohabiting. That means not married, but living together. Cohabiting or single adults. Hmm. Three, they are also more likely to have jobs at all, even when controlling for other factors such as race and education. Oh. Number four, marriage also consolidates expenses like food, child care, electricity, and gas. You want to get married and save money? Come on. Keep reading. And over the life course of those who engage in marriage. Marriage drastically reduces the odds of becoming indigent, a homeless person, or dependent on the state. And those are just the economic emphasis, his benefits of marriage. He says, I got more. I say, okay, tell me more. Recent high-quality research suggests that marriage is associated with five, higher life satisfaction. Six, greater happiness. Seven, better mental and physical health. I'm so excited about this. Eight, and greater longevity even after after controlling for baseline health. The guy knows what he's talking about. Keep reading. Marriage is connected to nine higher levels of meaning and purpose in life, 10 more positive relationships, 11 less loneliness. How many disciples were there? Okay, we need 12. And 12, greater social support, even controlling for financial status and education. 12 benefits. You just saw them on this screen. Cohabitation, living together, reflects uncertainty and diminished commitment while splitting up ends its, lends itself to emotional and financial struggles. I could go on, he writes. Well... Looks like there's some benefits. It looks like there's some benefits to this thing that's getting a bad rap these days. The M word, marriage. And if I sound like the Chamber of Commerce pushing marriage for these next few weeks, you got it right. That's my mission as a pastor. Push it, Dwight. Well, Dwight, what about the singles? Come on, come on. Cut us some slack. No, this isn't about singles. This is about marriage. We'll cross the, we'll cross the bridge that you're, you're, you're not sure about. We'll cross it. So whatever you've heard about marriage, here's the deal. If you're not married, it doesn't matter. Or whatever you've concluded to the contrary about marriage, if you are married or were married, the research simply shows that the institution of marriage brings huge benefits to human beings the world over. 
which doesn't make every marriage happy. I understand that. And which doesn't necessarily mean every marriage is fixable or repairable. Because sometimes, now listen to me carefully, sometimes the choice is taken out of your hand. Right? She did this. He did this. This is not my choice. And I understand that as well. You're absolutely right. Nobody's trying to pin a bad marriage on anybody. But we're thinking about it out loud. Because if you take two people who decide to call upon the incomparably great power that is unleashed by the risen Christ, all bets are off. If both of you are willing, that's what I stand before you today to announce. If both of you are willing, what seems impossible to man is possible to God. That's the point. Because we are standing, you and I, right here in the gaping mouth, I remind you of an empty sepulcher. It's empty. Do you understand that? He is alive. He is well. He is here through his spirit right now. And he is the Lord of hope. And he's breathing hope into your mind right now. He is breathing promise into your soul. And he is telling you, I don't care how many bad marriages you have had. I can still give you one that could turn your life around. Jesus, who loved the woman at the well. I know you've had four bad marriages and the guy you're living with now, cohabitation, is not your own. Come on, girl. Follow me. See what I can do for you. Ah, we dismissed it too quickly. What was Gabriel's Gabriel's suggestion to virgin teenager Mary? No word from God will ever fail, girl. I'm promising you that for, for with God, nothing will be impossible. And I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Dwight, I just, I just love all the celestial beings that you're deciding to quote today. Give me somebody human for Pete's sake. Okay, I will. I'm going to give you Job. Job. Job, who apparently didn't have just a really hot marriage, because after he got really bummed out, his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? She's just kind of ready for this thing to end. So don't look at Job as a, as a model for how to deal with crises as far as Mrs. Job is concerned, all right? But Job, at the end of his book, he's finally speaking to God. He says, oh, man, I have been so wrong about you. And God says, guess what? You're right now. Job says to God, oh, God, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours. Give me what this word is. Can be what? What's this word? Can be thwarted, can be stymied, can be blocked, can be wedged, can be stopped. No purpose of yours. Does God have a purpose for marriage? Take a look, Genesis. It is not good for the man, Ha-Adam, to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Does God have a purpose for the human race? Yes, he does. And it's the M word, marriage. Doesn't mean everybody has to get married. But it's the plan for the human race today. Incomparably great power. Just remember that when it comes to marriage, what man cannot do, 
God can do, for his purpose cannot be thwarted. And some of you have your heart on being married one day. Good for you. I'm proud of you. Don't you let, ever, don't, don't you let this culture talk you out of it. And don't you let this culture, and we'll talk about this next week, don't you let this culture tell you, well, there'll come a time, manana, manana. Too, too many parents have said, manana, 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 until it's too late. Now their children don't want to be married. That's true. Don't let anybody talk you out of it. You don't have to marry today. But if God has put it on your heart because it's his divine purpose for the human race and he's put it on your heart, hang on to that. He has incomparably great power and he'll, he'll step in for you. You watch. Don't count him out. Don't count him out. Ah. I want to close with a story. This is a story of Scott and Sherry Jennings. In 2005, we had every reason in the world to believe our marriage was over. My husband, Scott, was living with another woman. And I could see no indication that he would ever turn his heart back to our marriage and family. Everyone had advice to offer me. Kick him to the curb, girl. Move on. You deserve better than this. You go. But God also placed two strong women in my life to encourage me with the truth. I should love and respect my husband unconditionally, honoring the covenant I made with God. They told me, as long as you are breathing, there is hope. In September of 2005, on the day of our 14th wedding anniversary, we divorced. Three days later, Christ invaded Scott's heart. And we remarried each other after a period of reconciliation. Today we like to tell people, our divorce just didn't work out. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Yet the truth is that we decided to intentionally walk with God and each other, and it worked. We find ourselves asking, if no one tells couples, how will they know that as long as they are breathing, there is hope for their marriage? Don't ever sell yourself short of the incomparably great power of the risen Christ. There is a reason the tomb is empty today, and you are that reason. Let's pray. Oh, God, do not let him give up. Do not let her give up. Not yet. Not yet. Not before your incomparably great power can be unleashed for him, unleashed for her, all because he lives. Because he lives. Amen.